Hi everyone, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. On this show, we ask questions of the Bible that, you know, they come up as we're reading through the Bible. We also aim to discuss uh, some of your questions that you send us in. We read them in the comment section. We read them in our email. Uh, if you have questions for us, you can email us at hello at BibleDiscoveryTV.com or you can just pop, pop them down in the comment section for scripture that is coming up, scripture that we talk about today. Uh, but anyway, if this is your first time here, my name is Corey and I'm always joined by my husband, Matlock. Hey, how you doing? Good. Good. Welcome. Today we're going over 2 Chronicles 10 to Ezra 4. So that was the reading that we had this week. Yes. Yes. So a lot of historical questions. I'm going to be asking most of the questions this time. I'm not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, a, a lot of questions about the different kings that we read about in Chronicles. So lots of kings of Judah going on because Chronicles focus mostly on the southern kingdom of Judah rather than the northern kingdom of Israel. But there's a little bit of Israel going on in there too. We're also going to be taking a look at revival and reformation and those concepts as they relate to our world. So, Malik, right. are you are you ready for questions? I am. I got ready a question to... for you. It's a viewer question. <laughs> okay. His name just so happens to be Matlock. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm thinking maybe you wrote this one. <laughs> How could Rehoboam have been so stupid? His yeah. father was Solomon. He had good advisors. What's the deal, Steele? What's going on there? What's the deal? Yeah, because we really do have a huge contrast between Solomon and Rehoboam in terms of when Solomon, at least when he began his reign, he was asking for wisdom. He got wisdom. <clears throat> now, his wisdom didn't stop him from ruining Israel. <laughs> yeah. But because I think, okay, how could Rehoboam have been so stupid? I think he was set up for his stupidity by his father in a lot of ways. Um, because what, when you pay careful attention to the text, when it's talking about Solomon, we see him leading Israel into idolatry. He's building pagan temples. He's building pagan idol idols. He is offering sacrifices, not just his foreign wives. So his children by those wives are also engaging in idolatry. But another thing that Solomon is doing that we get very clear uh, hints in the scripture of civil unrest is that because Solomon is a builder king, not only did he build the temple and his palace and now all of these palaces and all of these other temples and pagan high places, he's also building gates and cities and walls and, and on, on all this is a builder king. But in order to accomplish that building, we're told that he taxes labor from the men of Israel. So certain times of year, they have to work for Solomon. And this is a really heavy burden, we're told, on the people so much so that there's a rebellion against Solomon led by a man named Jeroboam, who was an one of the overseers of forced labor for Solomon. So people begin to back Jeroboam Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam runs to Egypt for safety. And in Egypt is where he stays until Solomon dies. So Rehoboam comes to the throne of Israel, not with a super wealthy, super happy country. The country is super wealthy, but it is not super happy. The people had been willing to back Jeroboam over Solomon. And now Jeroboam comes... The people come to Rehoboam and they're like, 
we will follow you as king, as the descendant of David, as the son of Solomon, but you need to lift our burden. This is too much. <clears throat> so Rehoboam really inherits a dying system. <clears throat> now he could have turned it around. That much is true. Right. That much is true. What Rehoboam should have done, because he got three days to answer the people, what he should have done was go into the temple, offer a sacrifice to God, and wait to hear from God like Solomon did and ask for God's wisdom. But I don't think it's any wonder why he didn't do this. Because Solomon's children had also been engaging in idolatry that Solomon had been leading them into. Right. So at this point, Rehoboam should have inquired of the Lord. Rehoboam did not inquire of the Lord. He chose to go with the young men who seemed very confident rather than the old, older men with experience, those advisors. So, yeah. How could he have been so stupid? I think he was really set up for it, set up to fail. Right. Uh, but, you know, the onus is still on him. He's still the one who failed. He's the one who pulled the trigger. He's the one who stood in front of the men of Israel and said, you think it was bad under my dad? Mm. Right. It's going to be well, way worse yeah. under me. Idolatry just leads to, to, to uh, stu ah, I can't even speak, stupidity. Idolatry leads to, to stupidity. Wow, I used <clears> that too stu I couldn't get. Anyways, <laughs> that's right. All right, here, I, I got understand. Another, I got another question for you. Okay. Because I am the questioner today. So we have... Uh, related to 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 11. Okay. What is the significance of Jeroboam's sin in establishing the idols of Bethel and Dan? Yeah. This is terrible. Right. This is terrible news for everybody because, okay, Israel has gone off the deep end. They're engaging in idolatry as well as in worshiping God in Jerusalem in the temple. So then when the kingdom splits, right? So Rehoboam rejects the people's request. Ah, it's going to be way worse under me. You think my dad was hard. I'm going to be way harder than you. Well, of course, this doesn't work because they have a, a secondary king in the wings in Egypt. So Jeroboam comes back from Egypt and the 10 tribes follow Jeroboam and their tribal territory goes with them because they just reject the kingship of Rehoboam and David's house. Jeroboam had this amazing opportunity now to follow God. But instead, he sees the temple in Jerusalem as a threat. So rather than seeing it as, I'm king of the 10 tribes of Israel, though the temple is not in my territory, we're going to serve God better than the descendants of David. That would have been a really interesting and different story, but that is not the story that we got. Jeroboam sees the temple as something that he needs to replace. He's afraid that if the people go to the, to the yearly festivals in the temple, they'll slowly revert back to following Rehoboam because Rehoboam is, is in charge of the temple. He might charge taxes. He might charge levies on people coming to the temple. He might not let people come to the temple. So Jeroboam decides to replace the system. But unfortunately, <coughs> excuse me, I'm still really struggling with this cough that I've had for a few weeks now, but <clears throat> he decides to replace the temple with his own temples. So he puts one on the northern border and one on the southern border of the mm. 10 tribes of Israel, so the, the kingdom of northern Israel. And he tries to mix worship of God 
with idolatry. So he again uses calf imagery. He makes two golden calf idols. This is no surprise. The Israelites uh, made a calf idol when they came out of Egypt. Jeroboam is just coming back out of Egypt. So there's some sort of syncretism going on there. Uh, but what ends up happening is he creates a national system of idolatry. If you were an Israelite, this is how you worship Yahweh. This is how you worship God. What a smack in the face to God. Just replacing the law. Replacing even the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. Because the Levitical priests, by and large, went down and lived in southern Judah. Not all of them. So then anyone could become a priest <coughs> in northern Israel. So he Jeroboam completely replaced the system of Yahweh worship. Mm -hmm. Mixed it with idolatry. And it was a sin that never was stopped in northern Israel. So it was one of those sins where you could, he argued that you could worship God through worshiping these idols, which is yes. a really <clears throat> interesting thing to think about for how we worship today. Yep. And the order of priorities, like, oh, you can worship God through this. Yep. And well, that's that's even what Aaron did. He was right. like, look, look at your gods, Israel, Yahweh. Right. He's like, we'll just mix it together. It won't be so bad. Right. Yeah, syncretism, man. Syncretism gets you. It's not, it's yeah. not, it, it seems like a good idea. It seems like a good compromise and it's just not. Right. That's it's great. just not. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to flip the script here because I want to ask you a question. I know that you said that you were the questioner today. Yeah, you're breaking, breaking the whole thing. All right. I'm breaking it. I'm shaking right. it up. Okay, I'm <laughs> shaking it up. Okay, sure. Second Chronicles 18. Okay. One of my favorite kings, Jehoshaphat, however you want to say his name. I Jehoshaphat. say Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Jumping Jehoshaphat, yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Why would Jehoshaphat, a godly king, yeah, and he was good, he was a godly king, why would he make a marriage alliance with Ahab, an evil king? So Jehoshaphat's king of Jerusalem uh, in Judah. Ahab, of course, of Ahab and Jezebel of northern Israel. Jehoshaphat makes a marriage alliance with them. Why? Why would he well, do that? There's a reason why. I was the questioner because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I have an answer to this question. Um, so I think and, uh, practically speaking, on a human level, the heart, Jehoshaphat was a good king and the heart to unify Israel again was just there. And I think by making a marriage alliance with, although a bad king, which he would, his intentions were to unify Israel and Judah again. And I think that in a, in a very human way, by through marriage, just through, in this so in a social contract or a contract, I should say. Um, though it's you know it's limited, a contract is limited. So with that in mind, I I think that that would be the essence for what why he would want to do it. Yeah. Um, is that a good thing? I'm pretty sure the prophets say no, like don't do this. But I, maybe, but maybe I'm misremembering. Uh, as far as we know, he didn't get a direct prophecy before the fact, but he definitely got a prophecy of judgment after the fact. I see. That right. it was a bad idea right. to ally his house with the house of Ahab. Right. Um, but we know from all of the chapters that talk about Jehoshaphat, because there's quite a few, yeah. that it was pretty routine for him to ask a prophet before he did anything. So if he chose not to ask a prophet, it kind of goes to show you that he kind of knew that he was doing something a bit shady. Yeah. 
Or maybe he just wasn't thinking about it, but yeah, he wasn't he doing. He probably some... knew he wasn't doing something super up and up. Yeah, he's he's looking at it in human terms. It looks like okay. So <clears throat> thinking about that concept, mm -hmm. uh, because I think you're on the right track in terms of reunifying northern Israel and southern Judah. Because mm -hmm. what we often don't appreciate is the pressure that would have existed on the kings of Judah specifically. Judah is a much smaller territory, much lesser in power. Um, but northern Israel and southern Judah had been on and off in wars with one another since that's since the split, since the initial split. Right. Um, so Jehoshaphat probably just wanted to stop the warfare. Right. But also was looking, I think very realistically, was looking forward in time to maybe a union of these two very strong houses, mm -hmm. the house of David and the house of Omri could in the future create a king that was both yes. and could reunify yes. Israel and Judah, right? Because um, the house of Omri was so strong militarily and economically that even generations later in the um, it, with the kings, King Jehu and his sons, the Assyrian records refer to them, even though they wiped out the house of Omri, as being sons of Omri, right? As being of the house of Omri, right, right, right. So, for all intent, for all intents and purposes, the house of Omri seemed to be a very strong house. It wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. And perhaps Jehoshaphat thought, well, let's intermarry. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Maybe we can reunify Israel, and we know that the reunification of Israel was a dream for the kings of Judah, right? Because we see Hezekiah. We see hints of it in Hezekiah, Hezekiah, where the Bible, when it's when it's talking about his reign, how um, so he he invites people because during his time, northern Israel is excuse, excuse me wiped out by Assyria. I get really excited about this. Yeah. I'm dropping things. <laughs> yeah. Assyria wiped out northern Israel in terms of like they took Samaria and they exiled its people. So Hezekiah invited people in. Northern, still living in northern Israel, the ones who were left behind to celebrate Passover in Judah. So he's trying to like get those people. And we see with Josiah and Joash, those kings who were also reformer kings, they actually conquest up into Assyrian territory, into that old northern Israelite territory, and they tear down idols. So again, it's this idea of we want to reunify this land. We want to retake this land for God. But the problem is, but the splitting of the kingdom was a judgment from God. Right. Against Solomon and his, and his idol yeah. worship and his foolishness. So you can't really reverse the judgment of God. You can't by human effort. Right. Can't be done. So Jehoshaphat was trying, I think he was really trying very hard to follow God but also to balance his human responsibilities. And he got it wrong sometimes. That's right. He got it wrong here with right. the marriage alliance and he got it wrong with his shipbuilding. He made an alliance with Ahab's son and built a bunch of ships to try to get gold of Ophir and kind of bring back the glory days of Solomon. But a prophet comes and he's like, "What? Well, why, why are you teaming up with the evil house of Ahab? Yeah. And, and all the ships got shipwrecked, so... It's so understandable from a human perspective to like. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. So it's like he's still a good guy. 
It, it's yeah. just, it's just like, <laughs> his, okay, look, his, his, his kingly statement, like the, the summary of his life is still good. Yeah, of course. No, I know. He just did some things that. Yeah, no, it makes sense. He should have asked the prophets about that's right. first. Yeah, there, there was a misstep, but along the, along the way, but overall it's like, you know, these are like, you, even from a human perspective, yeah. he's still looking for the best interest of people. He's, he's just, trying to, yeah. He's trying to, he, he, but it was just in human terms, which then ends up not being for the best interest. Yeah. Anyways, but But yeah. some of the interpersonal stuff that, that happens, I think this is why he's one of my favorite kings is because the Bible decides to throw in accounts in Chronicles, but also in Kings, of um, his interactions with some of the prophets of God because he allied himself with Ahab. So he interacts not just with the prophets of God in Judah, but also the prophets of God in Israel. Yeah. Around that time period, Elijah, Elisha, Micaiah, some really cool prophets of God. Yeah. You get some really interesting, yeah. like uh, it opens a window into how the kingship worked. Right. And it's different than I think a lot of us just think the kings were sitting there making all these decisions, but the prophets of God were in there yelling at them. So it's, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I like it. All right. Let's get back on this. Back on track. Okay. Now okay. I'm questioning again. Okay. <laughs> never this. No more Fair asking enough. any questions. Okay. The Second Chronicles <coughs> 28. Yep. Is there anything that can help explain the great evil that Ahaz began to commit in Jerusalem? Why would he sacrifice his own sons, make an alliance with Assyria, and copy the altar and worship practices of Damascus? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so, I think so many of these kings, the decisions that they make don't make a lot of sense to us until we understand the historical context in which they were living. So there's, we know as people, there's a whole bunch of real life pressures that cause us to make the decisions that we make, right? We have to consider inflation and our salaries and the government regulation before we buy a property, for example, or make any big financial decisions. So it was with the kings. So Ahaz is living in a time period that is very, very treacherous. Ahaz is the father of Hezekiah during his reign, his co-reign with Hezekiah, the northern kingdom of Israel, because Ahaz is, is king of the king of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel was going to fall to Assyria. So he's living in a time period where everyone knows this. The, the kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria is on the move. It's empire building. It's wiping out countries all over the map. So all the kings of this territory are reacting to Assyria. So northern Israel makes an alliance with, with Syria Aram, with the capital city of Damascus, and they begin to war against Judah. The idea probably being we need to take over Ahaz's territory. We need to conscript all of the men to fight for our army so that we will be a unified force against Assyria. So Ahaz has a choice. Is he going to listen to the prophets of God and worship God and take advice from God? Or is he going to try to do things his way? He chooses to do things his way. So he calls for, calls for, sends messengers to the king of Assyria and rats out Israel and Damascus, Aram, Syria, depending on your Bible translation. And the king of Assyria 
comes and defeats them and specifically wipes out Damascus as a warning, will end up wiping out northern Israel. And Ahaz does something tremendously foolish where he then copies the worship practices of Aram, Damascus, in Judah both as a buffer for warfare. He's going all in now. He's not listening to God anymore. Mm. He's going to serve the other gods, these, these warring gods really well, and he's going to serve Assyria. Neither of these things go well for him. Right. Assyria ends up marching against him anyway. So. So. <coughs> bad idea to, to align yourself with a pagan nation that doesn't desire to worship God. Yeah, and it seemed like a good idea because he's like, maybe I can just get in on the ground floor here. Right. And rather than being taken over, I'll just become a vassal nation. Right. Well, that did happen, but he did not get as much freedom as he thought he was going to get because the Assyrian kings were like, oh, well, let's just come and march up against you anyway, just so that you know what it feels like. Just right. so that you know that if I wanted to, you would no longer exist. Right. You would not be here anymore. Hmm. <clears throat> That's interesting. Yeah, and and so Ahaz, I think it's I think I think what's even more interesting then is that Hezekiah chose to not do what his father had done. Mm. Literally chose to reverse everything that Ahaz had put into place, mm. probably as a direct result of listening to the prophets of God. Right. So his, his son tries to reform, and his dad tries to tear down. Then his son Manasseh has to tear down. Yeah, it's, it's this back and forth, right. evil, good, evil, right. because they're reacting mm. to the outside pressures that are really pushing right. in on them. Because think about how formational that would have been to Hezekiah, and in some ways Manasseh does the same thing as Hezekiah, except opposite. So Hezekiah watches his father Ahaz go pagan, mm -hmm. and. No, like Northern Israel, like Damascus. But then Hezekiah, in his very formative co-reigning co co years with his father Ahaz, watches Northern Israel, who's worshiping all these other gods, get wiped out mm. by Assyria. He sees Ahaz be humbled. He sees Damascus get destroyed. So Hezekiah goes the opposite way. I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm right. going to listen to the prophets. Um, and then God refrains from allowing all of Ju Jerusalem and Judah to be destroyed, but is severely humbled. The land is still severely humbled and Manasseh then reacts against that. So right. you've got a lot of reaction going on. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting to think that like every time their father comes in to do something and the son's like, I don't like that. This this didn't seem to work. Right. They're just trying what, what's working. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, I have another question for you. Mm -hmm. That is totally off topic. Okay. It's a supposed contradiction in the text. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, so, yes, yes. Now, I can't pronounce his name. Uh, it looks Nigerian, if I'm correct, but it's Mpendulo, uh, I'm guessing. But mm -hmm. anyway, so he asks, uh, or she, I don't know. It looks like mm -hmm. he. Uh, Hi, how do you explain the contradiction of the age of Jehoiachin in 2 Kings 24.8 and 2 Chronicles 36.9? Okay, so in 1 Kings 17, it says 18, uh, but depending on the, your English translation of the Bible in 2 Chronicles uh, 36, it will say either 18 or 8. So some of the manuscript copies say 8 and some say 18 of 2 Chronicles. So this seems to be a copyist error in copying the scripture. 
Um, I think it's pretty safe to go with 18. The fact that Jehoiachin would have been 18 because um, it talks about how he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, uh, which would be hard to do. Right. It could be done, but it'd be harder to do if you were eight. I, I think we go with the earlier account that testifies to 18 um, in Second Kings. And then also some of the manuscript copies of Second Chronicles do also say right. 18, but not all of them. So, so yeah, right. So I think what you're trying to say here is that all copies, Second uh, Samuel says 18, but some sa some copies for Second, second Chronicles. Yeah. Uh, second Kings, thank you. And some copies uh, say Second Chronicles says 8, only some. So they're like, okay, of all... I think most say 8, but some say 18 right. of Second Chronicles. Right. If, if, if I'm understanding. Right, and if that's the case, there's a majority of the, of the, you know, text that we have, Second Samuel's steadfast, and it says 18. Yeah. It's, it's just Chronicles that's, that's mistaken. So therefore, yeah. there's some sort of copyist error that happened. Yeah, and, and no. like how, how copies can work is, well, I mean, we know even just from hand copying things that it's very easy to copy something incorrectly. Yeah. But then if that copy that has the incorrect number gets copied by a bunch of other scribes who copy the incorrect number correctly, like yeah. it's going to be incorrect for a, a whole family of manuscripts. That's right. So there are copies errors in the copies of the Bible that we have. It's amazing how little copyist errors there are, but most of them are things like this, are numbers or the spelling of names. Yeah. And words and and things like that. Yeah. But luckily, it doesn't make a whole big difference yeah. whether he, whether he was eight or eighteen. He only ruled for three months. Uh, but also, I think from the context, we can we can discern that he was probably eighteen. Plus the testimony of Second Kings. Right. So that's where I would land on that. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's much more to say on that. All right. I think we should segue into the big question. Perfect. And we're early in this big question. We are time. early. I yeah. know. We've gone through some of these historical things pretty quickly. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Let's do it. I let's think just, it's nice. Because Chronicles is inherently <laughs> a recap time. of yeah. Kings, but just told in a different way. Yeah, that's right. Right? So this is good. We're just having a nice, easy time. I really appreciate all of you who are still watching and who choose to spend this time with us. I mean, I know you could choose to spend it anywhere else. I love talking about the Bible. I love discussing our Bible readings. I really appreciate that other people yeah, like it too. It's amazing. This nice camaraderie yeah. that we've got going on with everyone. That's right. Who also likes to listen and talk about and learn about the scripture. Yeah, to understand it. Yeah. All right. Okay, big question. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. We wanted to talk about the idea of reformation and revival. So the big question is, is reformation the same thing as revival. Right. And, and then the, yeah. you put a, you wrote this big question. I'm just throwing yeah. that out there. I'm, I'm throwing you under the bus here. It's, it's a good question. So it's not really a bus to be thrown under. But then you say, <laughs> are the reformations during the time of the kings like reformations we make today? That's right. And, and the reason why this question was brought up in the first place is because what you have here is Jehoshaphat, Jeho I think it's Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin, and then even uh, uh, Hezekiah, they're all reforming, and then their sons, right, are all idol worshippers. So it's kind of like you you have the nation of Israel falling into idol worship, then mm -hmm. as a reform, then it falls into idol worship, and then as a reform. It's very similar to the book of Judges, where they're going up and down, up and down, and spiraling, kind of spiraling out of control. Mm -hmm. um, so the concept is, the question is, is Reformation the same thing as revival? Um, now, ironically, 
when I wrote this question, okay, I have no clue. I just like, oh, this is, I'm like, this is a question <laughs> I need to look into. To there's something to discuss. Now, I know there's a, the Asbo revival, you know, that was happening and it's huge. It was a really big movie and it got on Fox News, all these big stations. Um, so I think that just plainly, as someone who hasn't studied this fully, uh, the Reformation, uh, when you look at a Reformation versus a revival, when we tend to think of a revival as something that like a true spirit led, true the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a sense. Right. Whereas Reformation is more so like institutional or doctrinal. So in other words, the systemization of worship, like you were saying, uh, with, um, uh, what's his name, who established uh, Jeho- Jer- Jeroboam at Dan and uh, yeah. Bethel. He established a system of idolatry. And so uh, in this case, we're talking about reforming systems and institutions and the doctrines, which are really important because they affect revival. So it's, I think it's a different side of the coin in my mind, whether or not they're the same thing or not. Um, I think one is the internal heart of someone, revival. Like you want to have people's heart. Like for instance, take, um, uh, what am I thinking of? The book of Jonah with Nineveh and Assyria. The Ninevites, you could argue that this was, you can't really call it revival, but there was mass repentance happening. Yeah, uh, they, but that so, isn't that is not mass repentance the the doesn't a revival necessitate mass repentance? Yeah, I think it does. So it's like that's like the, the at the core of it is what I'm saying. Yeah. And then obviously there would have to be like an outpouring of love. So in the Christian context, you would never call it revival in the Old Testament context, I would say. But in the Christian context, you would need that component it would be heart uh, heart-filled godly decisions being made and outpouring the Holy Spirit. Whereas reform would be like, well, I think our how we present how the church is structured needs to be fixed to preserve the yeah. true uh, spirit-filled, you know, things that God is, is having us do. So reformed is really, I think, looking at um, uh, fixing the, um, you know, like I said, the, the outward public structures of things, whereas uh, revival starts with the inner, the inner self. And obviously you need to have a, a, an individual kind of an inward revival Right to come to Christ and then start a reform that way, uh, but that's what I would say is the kind of difference there, the nuanced difference is that they're like two sides of a coin essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, uh, look, another question comes to mind in terms of just reformation as a whole, uh, and it's kind of, and it has to do with um, do we think that these reformations? Uh, we have a sub question: Are the Re- are the reformations during the time of the kings like the reformations we make or see today? Okay, this is really tricky because we're so different. Right. Right, so the kingdom of kingdoms of Israel and Judah, I mean, we only see revivals and reformations in the kingdom of Judah, but they lived under a different system than we did yeah. and in a monarchy. Um, I, I think we see this concept of revival and reformation uh, displayed for us in the life of King Josiah. Right. Because the religious structures in the days of Josiah, they were they they had a system that had involved idolatry. But when the high priest found the book of the law, he read it to Josiah, and Josiah had a huge realization moment. Right. Um, and he repented and he cried and he wept before God. And then based on the law, he instituted widespread reformations, uh, changes mm. to Judah's worship practices. And he could because he was the king. That's right. So he could do that. They, they, 
the king was on board and the high priest was on board. And together, those two men were able to make the changes that needed to be made to the system. Now, whether or not the people then conform to the system and also experience a revival was on the people. And we know in Josiah's time that a lot of people did. A lot of people did uh, respond to the word of the Lord. So you kind of have both going on there. Right. But I think today it's 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 so much more complex because it's not like it's not like the church has a king, right? Like right. The, the the Catholics have the Pope and 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 Anglicans have archbishops and and yeah, I mean did. technically the king, yeah. but not <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah. Um. And but we have so many denominations, and I think it's different. Yeah, it's just different. Yeah, I I think it's different too. Uh, at the same time, at the heart of it though, it's the same because it's establishing proper worship towards God. Um, I think how you go about those things would be different. I think the heart of it's the same. Um, yeah, for sure the heart of it has to be the same because right. it's being confronted with reality, right. with truth, recognizing your own inferiority to the truth, right. repenting, and then getting on board with the truth. Right. And, and God empowers you. The presence of God will empower you to do that. That's the right. Holy Spirit. You know, when you, when you come to Christ, when you repent of your sins, when you ask him to be the Lord of your life, he fills you with the Holy Spirit of God and you are indwelt with the presence of God. And every time we see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament come on somebody, let alone in them, come on them, like Saul, like David, like the sinful judges, God empowers them, the Spirit of God empowers them to complete the task that he has for them. Right. Now we have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, who is more than capable. He empowers us to live lives of godliness, to fulfill the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, to grow the fruits of the Spirit of Galatians 5. Yeah. So... So yeah, and if, to think about it in like a, like I was saying, they were they were formed in a public context. Um, so if like, let's think about this in terms of how efficacious a reform might be. So in terms of um, let's say Canada, U.S. Let's say just returned to like a Christian nation mm -hmm. and we reformed the laws that we have to meet the requirements that are necessary to establish a Christian nation and whatever that might be. Um, would that stimulate revival? So is it the reverse? I know I said earlier, I was like, okay, the heart starts in some sort of quasi-revival to bring about reformation. Uh, but would the reformation itself, that's public in nature, not indwelt, help a revival within the community at large? And I think that gets to more of the current thought that we're dealing with today. Because would changing laws and reforming the doctrines that we have actually help stimulate a revival in people? Uh, or do you think it would be um, indifferent to that? Do you think, it would, what do you think? So I think that the way, I can only speak to the Protestant church. Right. Because that's what I'm a part of. Sure, <laughs> sure. Um. Because I acknowledge that in other traditions, even in other Protestant traditions, like I come from a non-Baptist and Pentecostal, but mostly non-denominational. We don't, we are not like this segment of Christianity is not liturgical. So other segments of Protestant Christianity 
it may be able to come from reforming the laws, but from what I, from from just practically speaking, right, the laws come from our hearts. Right. The 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 creeds come from our heart. Like yeah. They come from truth, okay? Yeah, yeah. Ideally, they come from truth and we subscribe to truth. All right. But if we're not on board with them, we're not on board with them. Right. So I don't think someone just coming in and being like, here's the new creed, guys, right. is going to help. Because I think there are some solid historical creeds that are already so, there so that we need to get so, on board with so rather than rather than reforming the creeds. Right. Do you know what I'm trying to so say? So what you're saying, practice... I uh, sorry, I think there are a lot of practices... Right. In, in the Christianity, the tradition of Christianity that I'm familiar with definitely could use some changes, but I don't think that's going to happen without people sincerely seeking the face of right. God. Because here's what I hear, here's what I hear you're saying. If we do do reform, it's going to be just like the kings. Because, so you reform the outward side, but who's not to say you die and all the people who did do the reform die, mm -hmm. that they're not inwardly changed. Right. You can't guarantee an inward change from just making outward changes. Mm -hmm. I think I, that makes sense. Unless there's some sort of outward examples that you could be like, look, you can point to the kind of inspire that um, that understanding of mm -hmm. why we're making the reforms to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so it does require the inward to affect the outward. I don't think that the outward will necessarily always affect the inward. But I will say that having reformed laws, whether or not, you know, it's different between politics and religion, you kind of different, different things, does change how people, their worldview of life and how they go on perceiving things. So um, it might, because we're dealing with either, you can have like a seed where, oh, you have the, the spirit, you can quench the spirit. So it's like, it's, it's a weakened faith kind of idea, but then you can have like a full on, uh, fully sanctified, let's say individual or like society that's fully adopting the obedience and the lifestyle of Christ that he desires for us. I'm just trying to turn it to extremes. Okay. Trying to turn it to ex two extremes there. Um, in which, so if you have the, the doctrines that you have in place institutionally can help bring people down a, pro a proper path for that sanctification process by having improper doctrines and teachings in place. They could lead, they can keep you quenched, I should, quelched, I could say, uh, where it's like, it requires an inward, if you have false beliefs and a false pattern of believing, it can completely affect the way you have revival in your hearts. Right. It could be mitigated. The quenching of the Holy Spirit, these different types of different things. So I think that having proper reformed views in a religious sense is really important for proper worship. I think it needs to be right. Um, Having said that, I don't think you could say systematically, well, if we went, you know, from a religious perspective, uh, from a Christian perspective, if we went Episcopal, Episcopal versus Presbyterian versus Congregational, those, those different polities, um, that those are necessarily going to guarantee that there's no uh, idolatry that happens. Like if you look around the world around you right now, in every single Christian sphere, right? I said those different polities. Sure. There's just... Yep. People rebelling through and through. So it doesn't matter which one it is. Rebellion's going to happen. But after rebellion, then it comes a reformation kind of thing. The beauty about that I've seen in the, some of the Episcopal models is that the rebellion that happens becomes up front, upright and center. It's right in your face. Here's the rebellion that's happening, and it can't really hide because it has to go against a, a bigger um, 
beast, so to speak. It has to go against something that's bigger than itself and therefore yeah. becomes something much that's more established public. established as authority. That's right. Yeah. It's much more public. Whereas if you have minor settings, let's say, you know, one in Ohio, that's one denomination. If you go against that, well, that's really idiosyncratic to just Ohio. That's really idiosyncratic to just Ontario. Yeah. There's not a uh, not a wider governing body. That's right. So then these... That's, that's physical. Like that's right. You, you can argue, well, God. That's right. Holy so, Spirit. Of course. But we're talking about a human... That's right. So, so the rebellions that can happen can happen kind of in secret, whereas in an Episcopal setting, the rebellions kind of happen more publicly. Unchecked. They can go unchecked because the the hierarchy stops at that local level. Whereas that's so in that sense, that really makes a lot of sense in in my mind. Uh, But apart from that, so I think that um, in terms of I know we're kind of getting rebellion, reform, revival, all these different things. Too many R words. Too many R words. You, the Holy Spirit needs to be throughout the whole process. You can't just change laws and expect. People to get jump on board those laws. No, no. Doesn't work that way. But changing the laws are beneficial for the people who need to be, in my mind, who need who need the help. I guess, but that doesn't work in a non-denominational setting. What laws? What rules? Where are they written? Like other so, than in the actual like church layout itself, like the individual churches. Right. So what, in terms of that, I'm just saying it's so different. Oh, like, oh, of course it's yeah. so different. Right, right, right. No, I, I know it's completely different. Um, I, I think that at bottom, not to, to, you know, not to go too deep into this, but, and we can probably wrap this up soon. Um, it, it, there needs to be, like you're saying, the inward needs to affect the outward. And mm-hmm. that needs to be the beginning point. Uh, and we can't rely. I think the difference here is that what we're trying to say is you can't rely on the law to do its to do the job for you. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. You can't be like, oh, well, we reformed the laws and the institutions. Everything's good now. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, in Canada, you know, what was it? Uh, people just threw out the constitution when COVID hit. <laughs> they just threw it out. It didn't even matter. So mm-hmm. it's like push comes to shove, the people make the rules and they, they'll change the rules if they don't like them. Right. right. You're and talking the law now. You're I'm talking, talking the law. Yeah. I'm talking politics. But in general, what I'm saying is, even in, even in the church, People will throw things if they just don't like it. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm right. saying but that's the, the but way. Generally, but, but that's what I'm saying. They generally are not throwing out the constitution of their churches. So in non, in in, um, in the the Protestant traditions here that are congregational, the churches are founded and they have a constitution that lays out yes. their, fi- their, their, uh, their faith and their creeds and, and right. their, their, the way that they're organized authoritatively right. and towards the government. But generally you don't see people changing those things. They just rebel against those things. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So this ends up just not meaning much. Well, I've, I've seen it change too. And I think that's- It can. It can. But it absolutely can. Yeah. It absolutely can. But that's what I'm saying. Like, unfortunately, in at least this tradition of Christianity, right. it is all too easy to just ignore the written. Right. And, and I, I think follow this, the emotion. Well, that, that gets to the heart of it because in an Episcopal hierarchy setting, reform makes more sense. It, Unless it, it, you just ignore it, because 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 I I know like in in this culture there are right. some issues where it's still written. It is still written. What is written is still in accordance with the scripture, but what is practiced is not in accordance with the scripture or the okay, written. Right. But what okay. I'm trying to say is is that. The context of the, the initial question, Reformation versus Revival, in right. that setting, how how you view the question really changes depending on your 
denominational setting, let's say. Yeah. Oh, yes. Because if you're much. come from an Episcopal liturgical background, yes. Reformation carries a lot more weight to it. Yes. Then let's Agreed. say right because then denominational like yeah, everything because, because it's what's conducive with the authority structure for sure. That's exactly right. Sure. Whereas the non-denominational setting, it's like okay, well, you know, okay, well, we'll just we'll just change that, it up. Yeah. They say it's, it's, the buck stops at you know this town in in this small little square. So, but in terms of revival, revival has a lot more. Like we talked about the Asbury revival, a lot more umph to it because it's comes down to the bedrock of the of salvation, which is the spirit, spiritual indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? That carries onwards. Mm -hmm. So. That would be the two major differences of why you probably have the two different big mm -hmm. splits. Um, now, I don't need to drag this on anymore, but the question was, are they the same thing? It's like, well, no. And and, and the not. view of them is different, you know, like I said, depending on your setting. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's about it. Yes, we are living in a different time than the time period of the kings, though we can learn much from the kings of Israel and Judah, which is why I think it is one of the reasons it's kept in scripture. What do you guys think? What do you think about Reformation? What do you think about revival? What do you think about it in a modern Christian context? Pop your comments and your questions down in the comment section below. And until next week, happy reading. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.